Good morning. A uh, couple things I want to say. First of all, that next time Rachel and Boyan are here, if you have an opportunity to get out with them, uh, invite them to lunch or dinner or something like that, I encourage you to do that. I had the, the privilege of meeting with them over lunch this past Wednesday, and you will be very pleased about this couple and the work that they're doing and the um, diligence and the perseverance and uh, you're just you're gonna you're just gonna feel proud to call them our missionaries if you spend a little personal time with them so I want to encourage you to do that uh, secondly I wanted to say that it's not by accident that Hallett picked the songs that he picked for this morning Hallett's pretty diligent to and, and not not Hallett is and Jason is and Jim as they lead worship to really uh, try to determine what is the best theme. But Hallett also cheats sometimes. And uh, I upload my sermon PowerPoint. Can we have that on the screen? And, uh, and so he'll, he'll cheat. He'll look through that. And, and but this morning was perfect, Hallett. I mean, you really nailed the songs. It really fits. And you'll see that as we move along this morning together. So the first thing I want to do is read from 1 Corinthians cha chapter 1. It's a little bit of a long passage, but it really will help lay the groundwork for what we want to do this morning. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, nor were many powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, the genesis of this message uh, was already percolating before this, but then last week during our Monday, Thursday, Good Friday service, I was listening to Jim Garrett's exposition of Scripture and his explanation of the crucifixion on Good Friday, and I was struck again as I listened to that with the foolishness, according to the world's wisdom, of God's plan of salvation. Here's the maker of the universe, the king of kings, the lord of lords, choosing before the beginning of time to become flesh. And not just that, but then to undergo the most horrible torture and death imaginable for us and for our salvation. That's crazy. That's foolishness. That's why it's a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, as Paul says in the passage we just read in 1 Corinthians. I also thought of how wicked our sin is and how terrible the wrath of God is 
and that this is the price that must be paid in such a terrible way and that Jesus absorbed that wrath for me. But Paul also tells us that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. I want to relate that understanding of wisdom this morning to an additional insight from the word about wisdom, namely that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do fear and wisdom go together? We see this idea explicitly and implicitly throughout the Word of God in many places in Scripture. Let's look at just a few this morning. Let's start with Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord? These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Tremble. That implies a healthy fear, doesn't it? And it shows us how critical the word of God is to our wisdom and to our fear of the Lord. We read also in Psalm chapter 19, verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So here again we see how clearly connected the word of God is to the fear of the Lord. The rules of the Lord that we see mentioned in this passage in Psalm here is a synonym for the law, the scriptures. The law of the Lord is designed to cause believers to obey, to live righteous and holy lives. We even see from our Bible how the fear of the Lord is associated with the growth of the church and people coming to Christ. We read in a couple passages here that I'll cite. Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The growth of the church is connected to the wisdom and the fear of the Lord. Again and again, we see the fear of the Lord in scriptures as a net positive. We see it in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So the fear of the Lord, properly understood from scripture, is undoubtedly a good thing. So to understand this better, we have to go back to the beginning. And when do you start things, and where do you usually start? You start at the beginning, right? If you were building a simple tower with blocks and you said, hey, just for fun, just to be different, let's start with the top. That would be fun. What's going to happen, right? Your top would end up at the bottom pretty quickly. In baseball or softball, if you were running the bases after a hit, but you sent the run start from first base rather than home plate, what would happen? The umpire would call you out immediately because you didn't start at the beginning. Now, these seem like simple observations and maybe even a little bit silly. Of course you start at the beginning, right? With everything. After all, where else would you start but at the beginning? Well, apparently God doesn't take for granted that we will always start at the beginning with some of these important, serious things. 
because he made a clear point to instruct us about the beginning of the knowledge and wisdom that we all need, not only to know him and follow him, but simply to operate effectively in this world that he created. So we read in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And a related passage of scripture is in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Very simple, very basic, very straightforward, huh? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We all need knowledge and we all need wisdom to survive, let alone thrive in the world, right? Yet it's clear from what's written here in Proverbs and in other passages that address the theme of the fear of the Lord that there must be those who don't put first things first. There are those who don't start at the beginning. There are those who don't follow that first very important step, kind of like trying to put the top block on the tower before you put anything underneath it as a foundation. God calls these people, these people who don't start at the beginning, in a roundabout way in Proverbs 1-7, he calls them fearless fools. He calls them fearless fools. Now, just as there are good fools, such as those who believe the so-called foolishness of the gospel, which we saw at the beginning passage that we read, there are also not-so-good fools, as described here, who despise wisdom. That doesn't mean they just don't like it very much. They despise it by the way they live, by the way they behave. They despise wisdom, including the revealed truth of the gospel, which is foolishness to unbelievers. The word fear here in the Greek is where we get the word phobia. You've heard of phobias, right? All kinds of phobias out there. There's palatophobia. Anybody know what that is? It's the fear of baldness and bald people. I'm not looking at you, Dallas. There's aerophobia. It's a fear of drafts. There's porphyrophobia. I'm looking around to see if I see. It's fear of the color purple. <laughs> There's chetophobia. It's the fear of hairy people. James, you scare the mess out of me. <laughs> There's thalassophobia. These are real things. There's thalassophobia, the fear of being seated. There's phobophobia, fear of being afraid. And then, of course, we have the classic cucumbophobia that most cats seem to have. You've seen some of these videos, haven't you? I got to tell you, the first time I saw some of these cats and cucumbers videos, I laughed so hard, out loud. They're really funny stuff. Who'd have thought, huh, that cucumbers could be so terrifying, but apparently they are to cats. So that was one I made up, cucumbophobia. But then <laughs> there's my favorite, actually. I have two favorites, and of course they're from the far side. There's anatidaphobia, the fear that somewhere, somehow a duck is watching you. You can't really see it in the cartoon on screen, but the guy sitting there, he's got big eyes, and there's a duck in the window across the street. And then there's lupo-slipophobia. That's the fear of being pursued by timber wolves around a kitchen table while wearing socks on a newly waxed floor. <laughs> that scares me, too. <laughs> oh, man. 
Those timber wolves right there in you. Okay. <laughs> but this morning, we're going to take a closer look at the good, healthy fear that we learn about in the Word of God, the fear of God. That's the fear that's the beginning of knowledge. That's the fear that's the beginning of wisdom. Now, this can be a hard topic for several reasons, not the least of which is that our first response when considering the topic of the fear of God is colored by our understanding of what it says in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Our natural, human, and even worldly wisdom says, well, if God is love, how and why should we fear him? They don't seem to go together. Not only does God love us, but the word says he is love. So at first glance, we seem to have a contradiction here in Scripture. Well, as so often happens, the apparent contradiction is only our initial and finite understanding of these things, and it's clearly not a contradiction when you take into account a fuller picture of God as presented in his word. We must understand individual passages of Scripture as interpreted by the whole of Scripture. We hammer that in our house church. Context. You always have to have context, right? Just as the Word of God is full of descriptions of the love of God, Scripture is also full of admonitions and commands and affirmations of the rightness of, the holiness of God, the justice of God, and the fear of God. They all go together. And translating the word fear as simple respect is not adequate. The fear of God certainly includes, but is more than what we would think of as simple respect. Another reason this is a difficult topic for many Christians is that the fear of God is difficult for us to put into words. There are helpful comparisons, but there's no fully adequate human comparisons. But I'm going to try this morning anyway. Consequently, we can only begin to fully grasp this theme, but it's clearly important because of the frequency we see this in Scripture that we do wrestle with this and try to come to an understanding because of the many references in Scripture written in positive ways about the fear of God. So that's what we're going to try to do here this morning, to try to get a handle on the fear of God. Let's face it. Think of it this way. If you're face-to-face with a lion, you fear it don't you? You don't just respect it. You're afraid, and it's a healthy fear that might actually help keep you healthy. You wouldn't think of putting your hand near the lion's mouth. If you're not afraid, you're as good as dead or mauled. What's more, you're a fool if you have no fear at all. If you're at a zoo with a deep moat and a high fence between you and that lion, you don't have the same kind of fear but you're still not going to climb the fence to get closer. If you do, you're a fool. A fearless fool, but a fool nonetheless. Now, if you're driving down the highway and you see a police car, you automatically do what? You slow down and you check your speed, don't you? You don't want to get a ticket for exceeding the speed limit because you fear the consequences of getting caught speeding. Expensive consequences. If you're speeding, You don't have the same kind of fear, but that doesn't mean you're going to speed up and pass all the other people who are slowing down. If you did, you'd be a fool, a fearless fool, unafraid of the very expensive consequences. Now, these are inadequate pictures of how we are admonished to fear God in Scripture, but they do begin to capture what it means. If we're in Christ, we needn't fear God 
the same way that someone who hasn't trusted in Christ should fear him. Of course, those who don't fear God at all are the ones who should fear him the most. However, though our fear is not the same as one who's unredeemed should have, there's still a healthy biblical fear of God that's appropriate and right. Jesus himself said, Matthew 10, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a sobering passage. Let's take a closer look at the two passages of Scripture from Proverbs we read earlier. See if we can get a little bit more of a grip on what it means to fear God and why fear of God is a good thing, an important predictive and protective thing in our lives. Even a joyful recognition of who God is. We read a few minutes ago, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Let me read it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Commentator Matthew Henry writes about this verse. We are not qualified to profit by the instructions that are given us unless our minds are possessed by a holy reverence for God and every thought within us is brought into obedience to him. One Bible handbook says this, Fear of the Lord is an important recurring phrase in Proverbs. It describes a wholesome awe and respect for God that expresses itself in obedience, reliance on God, and deliberate avoidance of evil. So the fear of the Lord is a relationship of reverence and obedience. Proverbs also tells us that it's the foundation or the beginning of a worldview that's worthy of calling it knowledge. And remembering Jesus' parable of the house built on the rock versus the house built on sand. You remember that one? We understand how critical a firm foundation is. Without a firm foundation, nothing can stand. That holds true for our worldview, the way we see the world, just as much as our wisdom. But fools are unwilling to listen, and their house built on sand is doomed to fall, not just in this life, but clearly in the next. The fear of God is not simple fear, but reverence, whereby an individual recognizes the power and position of the individual revered and renders him proper respect. The word for beginning in Proverbs 1-7 means the first, in place, time, order, and rank, specifically a first fruit. It's the first part, it's the foundation on which everything else is built. Without the healthy fear of God in place, we are not qualified to profit from instruction, as Matthew Henry says. In other words, the instruction doesn't do us any good at all unless we first fear God. In the passage in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the word for beginning there has a slightly different nuance to it. In Proverbs 9.10, the Hebrew word for beginning here differs from the word for beginning in 1.7. In 9.10, it means prerequisite. In college and high school courses, right, some courses have a prerequisite. In other words, from my college experience, if you haven't taken intro to TV production, they won't let you take advanced TV production. For those in high school, you don't take trigonometry or calculus unless you first past algebra and geometry. Have you ever had students like that, James? Maybe you think they didn't pass algebra and geometry. 
There is no use in teaching a doctor how to perform surgery until he has a full understanding of anatomy, right? That's the beginning of wisdom for a doctor. That's a prerequisite. Otherwise, he might cut the body part, the wrong body part that you don't want him to cut, and say one of the things you never want to hear a surgeon say in an operating room. Oops. You don't want the guy who placed 159th in his class of 160 operating on your brain. The fear of the Lord is not only the foundation and the first thing in any kind of knowledge that we might gain, but it's a prerequisite to any kind of real wisdom we might hope to attain. The idea is that without the fear of the Lord as a foundation, without the fear of the Lord as the prerequisite, knowledge and wisdom are unattainable. We can't possess real knowledge or genuine wisdom without the fear of the Lord. Oh, we might know facts. We might even know a lot of them. After all, Google may be the fountain of all knowledge, but it's not the fountain of all wisdom. But knowledge and wisdom are more than just being what we might call smart. It's more than just an accumulation of facts or information. A biblical understanding of knowledge involves the ability to view that information with the right perspective and know how to use it for its proper end. A common understanding of wisdom is good judgment or the ability to develop the best course of action in response to a given situation with the information you have at hand. However, in the word, wisdom always has a strong ethical content as well. Wisdom in Proverbs is more concerned with righteous living than it is with shrewd judgment. The Bible speaks often about human knowledge. According to the word, knowledge of God is the greatest knowledge. After all, Proverbs 9.10, which we read, also says that knowledge of the Holy One, that's God, is understanding. The knowledge of God is not simply theoretical or factual knowledge. It includes experiencing the reality of God in our lives and living our lives in such a way that shows reverence for the power of and majesty of God. How do we do that? Seeing the greatness of God in His creation. Beginning to glimpse in His Word the true holiness of God. Witnessing His wisdom in running the universe. Science, folks. Recognizing His involvement in the most intricate details of our lives. Experiencing His awesome, amazing love for us and falling on our knees in acknowledgement of his power and authority. Another way to say that might be seen in the verses we read. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. As is so often the case, the scriptures give us both the positive and the negative of this theme. That is, on the one hand, here's the good that comes from fearing God, and then here's the reality of not fearing him. The second part of Proverbs 1.7 notes, fools despise wisdom and discipline, or wisdom and instruction. The clear implication is that those who do not fear God are fools. Fools is not too strong a word, because the Bible uses it here. There are several uncomplimentary words that appear in the Bible describing fools. About 360 times, unwise and ungodly people are described as fools in a couple places rather than the word fools it's stupid or their behavior is described as folly 
This is especially true in what are known as the wisdom books of the Old Testament, where we're spending a lot of time this morning, including the book of Proverbs, from which we've already read. So folly is the opposite of wisdom, and a fool is the opposite of a wise person. The godly person chooses wisdom, and wisdom leads to victory. The fool chooses folly, or stupid, and that leads to defeat. And as we saw earlier, the fear of the Lord is rooted in a relationship of reverence and awe toward God. Reverence and awe of the God who is and what he does and what he's capable of. It's the kind of relationship that strengthens us. And inevitably, as we fear God, it leads to knowledge and it leads to wisdom. The opposite of that is the fool who despises wisdom, who despises instruction, who despises discipline. Three Hebrew words are translated fool in the book of Proverbs. One kind of fool is characterized by a dull and closed mind, thick-headed and stubborn. Now, I don't want you all looking around the room thinking of somebody who fits that description. This word for fool occurs more frequently in Proverbs than the other two words. It's, in fact, it's used 49 times in the book of Proverbs. Now, this kind of fool, by his laziness and short-sightedness, rejects information from others. Another word for fool is used only three times in Proverbs, and it refers to the one who lacks spiritual perception. A third kind of fool is arrogant and flippant, as well as mentally dull. So it's kind of a composite with the other kinds of uh, fools we see described. He's stiff-necked, he's hardened in his ways. This is the kind of fool that's described in Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 7, those who in their arrogant, stiff-necked ways choose to reject God's wisdom. They choose not to fear God. We also see that reference in Proverbs 129. They hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. I don't know about you, a verse like that really scares me. They hated knowledge and they didn't choose to fear the Lord. They chose not. They actively chose not to fear the Lord. So two kinds of people are contrasted in Proverbs 1-7. First, there are those who humbly fear God, and as a result, they gain true knowledge and wisdom. And then there are those arrogant fools who by their refusal to hear God and to fear God, demonstrate that they view wisdom and discipline with contempt. That's what the word despise here means, to hold in contempt, to belittle, to even ridicule. Can you imagine ridiculing God? Only a fool would ridicule wisdom and understanding from God. That's what Scripture tells us. Many years ago, I read a great book. I can still recommend it today about fearing God. It was by Jerry Bridges, who passed away a few years ago, one of my favorite writers. It's called The Joy of Fearing God. He notes what we recognized earlier, that it seems to be an oxymoron, right? That the words joy and fearing God seem to be direct opposites. They're kind of mutually exclusive, like jumbo shrimp, right? But he goes on to explain from the scriptures in book-length form why we should not only fear God, but find joy in doing so. He writes, a profound sense of awe toward God is undoubtedly the dominant element in the attitude or set of emotions that the Bible calls the fear of God. 
he adds that a popular definition of the fear of God is reverential awe. And he's concluded that this is a pretty good definition. However, he also notes that the fear of God has been sort of diminished to mean simple respect, especially in our culture, which as we've already noted, it's not enough. It's not adequate. Also, the word awe, even reverential awe, is not properly understood in our culture today. The true meaning of awe is an emotion in which dread, veneration, and wonder are variously mingled. I think that's a good definition of awe. He also wonders in his book, should we be afraid of God? He quotes John Murray, the Puritan writer, who wrote, it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. The scripture throughout prescribes the necessity of this fear of God under all the circumstances in which our sinful situation makes us liable to God's righteous judgment. The Bible often relates a lack of fear of God to sinful conduct. Paul wrote of sinful man in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Can you think of any better description of our culture today than Romans 3.18? Our society is neither in awe of God or afraid of his judgments. So, as we often try to do here, we don't want to just say, out there, out there, out there, all those folks. But what about us? But what about us? What about Christians? When God reveals himself in Scripture, in experience, it points us to the vast distinction between us and God, how completely other he is. There is a mystery in divine holiness. When we get just a glimpse of God's holiness, we can become overwhelmed with a sense of awe and reverence or fear. The Bible's full of examples. I'm not going to read it this morning, but I encourage you to read it. Read Isaiah 6. That's a great example of the kind of fear of God that we're talking about this morning. Seeing God in any fashion in Scripture, people consistently respond by falling down, kneeling in reverence or worship, and confessing sin and seeking God's will. Our God is an awe-producing God because of His majesty, because of his power, his works, his transcendence, and his utter and complete holiness. Now, we might be inclined to de-emphasize the fear of God in the New Testament, as we observed earlier, by placing the love of God above the fear of God. And yes, there is an emphasis on the love of God in the New Testament, and rightly so, because in Jesus, God revealed his love. He revealed his mercy. He revealed his grace in a human form that we could relate to and understand. The song from uh, Michael Card, the Christmas song, Eternity Stepped Into Time, so we can understand. That's part of what we read about in the New Testament. Although we have been delivered from the ultimate wrath of God, we are not guaranteed deliverance from his temporal, that's this world, judgments. Paul warns us in Romans 11.22 to consider both the kindness and the severity of God. As we read in, uh, and we also read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, therefore having these promises, beloved, so he's writing to believers here, he calls them beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
in an attitude of reverence for God, which produces obedience, sanctification, or holiness can be perfected. That is, it can be completed. It can be matured. We can grow in it. This is a maturing, growing holiness and increased Christ-likeness. We read in Philippians chapter 2, Paul encourages us, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So Paul told the Philippians to work out, to put into practice in their daily living what God had already worked out for them in his spirit, by his spirit. They were not told to work for their salvation. They were told to work out their salvation, the salvation that God had already given them. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Now, the King James of that verse says, So that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So we see that awe and fear kind of being used interchangeably there. Why? Verse 29 of the same chapter 12 gives us the answer. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. John Murray wrote, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. So yes, the fear of God is not just for those who don't know Christ. As believers, we are to fear God. For us, it means reverence, admiration, and awe in recognition of His infinite worth, admiration of His glorious attributes, amazement at His infinite love for us. It's that almost indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God really is and what He has done for us. Writing prophetically of Jesus, Isaiah 11.3 says of Jesus, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. So even Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord. We need to be careful in our relationship with the Lord and not take Him for granted. Yes, He's loving. Thank God. He's loving. He's merciful. He's full of grace. He's compassionate. But let's not take our fellowship for God for granted and become overly familiar. Jesus is not our boyfriend. He is the sovereign, awesome, all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent maker of the universe. If we read His Word regularly, we will gain a greater understanding and yes, fear of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So let's ask God for a clearer vision of who He really is. Let's remember that just about every time we see someone encounter the living God of the Bible, it produced an awesome reverence and fear. <coughs> Excuse me. 
you know, if we saw God as He really is, I doubt we'd be jumping up and down and clapping our hands. No, we'd be on our faces before Him, which again was why the songs that Hallett picked this morning were so appropriate. Because His Word reveals our God is a consuming fire. Though He's also clearly a God of love, grace, mercy, and patience, He's a fearsome God. And the fact that He's at the same time a God of love makes me fear Him all the more. Amen? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Your Word which reveals who You are. It shows Your character. It reveals Your grace and Your mercy. It reveals Your compassion. It reveals Your love for us. But it also reveals a God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the maker of the universe, an awesome, powerful, almighty God. So Father, we as those who are in Christ don't cower before You, but Father, help us to always have a clear picture of who You are. Help us to remember, Father, how Your Word reveals You to be an awesome God full of grace and mercy, but full of power. And a God who is not just loving, but a God who is also just. We thank you for these truths, Father. Help us to live our lives in light of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.